0: good to see all of you. I would say see all of you. I say that sort of metaphorically, of course, but thank you so much for spending this time with us in worship this morning, and thank you, Steve, for that uh, always well-prepared exhortation. Never ceases to amaze me how the Holy Spirit leads people together on the same path thematically, and uh, it's always good for my spirit to be prepared even before I preach to have the just right scriptures read just prior to our worship time. Have I told you lately, congregation, that I still love our congregation? I keep reminding myself how fortunate and blessed I am as a pastor to be serving a church that has made it through this pandemic season so far, so cohesively, despite the fact that we have been through some bumps, serious bumps in the road. And yet, I'm also reminded that you are the church, that all of us collectively who house the spirit of a living God are the church, and you have maintained a great spirit in caring for one another, being compassionate to one another, and getting along with one another as best we can, and so I appreciate that. What I'm going to be preaching today has the potential of ruffling feathers, and I say that only because I'm human, and I know how passionate I can become about certain topics, and I assume that because you're human, you may share some of that same passion. So I want to pray right now that the God who we serve and who is inspiring all of us to do the one another's for one another, will teach us and bring us into unity around his word today as we open our hearts and minds to what it is he wants to teach us. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, This passage especially spoke to my heart, especially this week, because of what we've been going through, not just as a congregation, not just in a pandemic, not just because we can't meet in a building, but because we're also in this crazy election year. There are so many reasons why people are on edge today. So this passage, more than any other passage, seems to be the exact right passage for right now. And I'm grateful that you always plan in advance what it is we're going to be arriving at so that we can break bread together around this bread of life, your word, which will feed us and I pray will also draw us together in the kind of unity that Jesus Christ prayed for. Thank you for what you're going to teach us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So am I willing to put my faith filter above my political filter? That's the question which will drive everything we're looking at today. It's a good question. It's a tough question. It's a question I've been wrestling with for weeks and specifically all this last week as I've been preparing today. Parents, in order to set us up for what we're going to be looking at, have you ever said to one of your children, "Uh, honey, I, I don't think sledding is such a good idea on the stairs or something like that. Have you ever had to reiterate something that you've been telling them, thinking that maybe if you restated your initial exhortation that maybe you could add a little more detail and it would add some understanding to them? Uh, Honey, I know that you're actually sliding on a trash can lid, so it's not technically a sled, but you're still really sledding, especially down the stairs. And because sliding down the stairs on a plastic lid is not really good for your health or for the paint on the walls, or for the carpet, ooh, or for the cat, I really think it's probably a good idea that you not sled down the stairs on this lid. Have you ever sensed that sometimes it takes a lot of reiterations and a lot more detail to get your point across? As I read through this passage from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, <laughs> kind of got the impression that Paul was like those parents and he felt like, I need to reiterate and I need to add more detail because you still haven't gotten it yet. Maybe he wrote this all in one sitting. I doubt it. It feels to me like he had a chance to think about what he had written in one section, and then he added more detail later, thinking, you know, there are probably going to be some people reading this letter, and they're going to have questions about what I just said back here, so I'm going to go a little deeper. Feels like that's what he's doing in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Today's passage, I'm going to read it from the message. I like to read the message in some of my daily Bible readings because it's so contemporary that it just has that natural flow and contemporary feel. And I really think in lining it up with several other uh, translations and paraphrases, this one actually captures some of the interpretation better than some of the other translations that we got. So that's what I'm reading it from today. If you're reading along in a different translation, it's going to be slightly different. That's okay. We want to be able to compare notes and come up with the gist of what Paul is actually trying to get us to to understand today. So here it is as from the message, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 33. So, my very dear friends, Paul says, when you see people reducing God to something they can use or control, get out of their company as fast as you can. I assume I'm addressing believers now who are mature draw your own conclusions when we drink the cup of blessing aren't we taking into ourselves the blood the very life of Christ and isn't it the same with the loaf of bread we break and eat don't we take into ourselves the body the very life of Christ because there is one loaf our manyness becomes oneness Christ doesn't become fragmented in us rather we become unified in him we don't reduce christ to what we are he raises us to what he is that's basically what happened even in old israel those who ate the sacrifices offered on god's altar entered into god's action in the altar do you see the difference sacrifices offered to idols are offered to nothing for that's what an idol is but nothing or worse than a nothing. It's a minus, a demon, and I don't want you to become part of something that reduces you to less than yourself, and you can't have it both ways, banqueting with the master one day and slumming it with demons the next. Besides, the master won't put up with it. He wants us, all or nothing. Do you think you can get off with anything less? Looking at it one way, you could say anything goes. Because of God's immense generosity and grace, we don't have to dissect and scrutinize every action to see if it will pass muster. But the point is not just to get by. We want to live well, but our foremost efforts should be able to help others live well. With that as a base to work to work from, common sense can take you the rest of the way. Eat anything sold at the butcher shop, You don't have to run an idolatry test on every item. The earth, after all, is God's and everything in it, he quotes from the Bible. That everything certainly includes the leg of lamb at the butcher shop. If a non-believer invites you to dinner and you feel like going, go ahead and enjoy yourself. Eat everything placed before you. It would be both bad manners and bad spiritually to cross-examine your host on the ethical purity of each course as it's served. On the other hand, if he goes out of his way to tell you that this or that was sacrificed to this god or that goddess, so and so, you should probably pass. (laughs) Even though you may be indifferent as to where it came from, he isn't. And you don't want to send mixed messages to him about who you are worshiping. But except for these special cases, I'm not going to walk around on eggshells worrying about what small-minded people might say, I'm going to stride free and easy, knowing what our large-minded master has already said. If I eat what is served to me, grateful to God for what is on the table, how can I worry about what someone will say? I thanked God for it, and he blessed it. So, eat your meals heartily, not worrying about what others say about you. You're eating to God's glory, after all, not to please them. As a matter of fact, do everything that way, heartily and freely to God's glory. At the same time, don't be callous in your exercise of freedom, thoughtlessly stepping on the toes of those who aren't as free as you are. I try my best to be considerate of everyone's feelings in all these matters, and I hope you will be too. Let's pray once again. God, would you please help us to go beyond mere intellectual rightness or accuracy in this teaching, would you please stir our hearts so that our attitudes are changed and so that our actions reflect those changes in our attitude? We really want to reflect you to others, and if this teaching helps us do that, even if it means we have to be honest about certain blind spots that we may have missed in our own character, then we still want you to give us what we really need and not just what we think we want. We ask for your help in these things based on the authority of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So a little reminder about who's writing the letter, because I'm expanding the scope a little bit since Paul is writing stuff that's kind of an exposition of what he already talked about in chapter 8. I'm going to be going into a little more detail, like what Paul did for us, by looking at some of Paul's other letters so that we can get a better grip on what he's trying to teach us here. He was a former Pharisee, a legalist, a persecutor of Christ followers. And now, after his conversion, he is a fully devoted follower of Christ. He doesn't live according to the Jewish law anymore. In fact, now he's living under what both he and the Apostle John have referred to in some of their writings as the law of Christ. That's something we need to unpack just a little bit. Three concepts that I want to start with. We're going to add a fourth later, and we're going to see how that grows into an application for 2020. But right now, let's look at these three things. The law of Christ, an informed conscience, and knowledge and wisdom. John 13, 34 through 35 uses this term, the law of Christ. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's kind of one way that John was trying to show us what the law of Christ embodies. All the teachings of Jesus Christ, according to the four gospels, fleshed out everything that had pointed to Christ from the Old Testament. And so he's a fulfillment of the law rather than a replacement. Yes, it's replaced, but it's replaced with something even better. And so he fulfills everything that needed to be fulfilled in order for there to be this new covenant. Prior to his conversion, Paul revealed in creating, uh, reveled in creating division. He, he loved it. He kind of loved a good debate or a good fight. And because he had power and authority, he usually won. And unfortunately, some of the times that he won resulted in the persecution of, and very bad consequences for Christians who had put their faith on the line. And yet after his conversion, we see this remarkable character arc. He's a very different individual because he becomes a great reconciler. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 5.18, you can see that he says that's one of our ministries. We're supposed to be ministers of reconciliation, just as Christ reconciled us as sinners, lost sinners, to a holy God. We're supposed to be ministers of his reconciliation as well. Very different from the Paul who used to revel in division. In his letter to the believers in Galatia, Paul wrote this, carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. There's that term. He's focused on relational bridge building, I use that term a lot because I think it's a good term for kind of a part of our evangelistic thrust. I call it pre-evangelism sometimes, although if you're gonna split hairs, it's all evangelism. (laughs) But the pre-evangelism is something that I had heard from Ralph Neighbor Jr. who taught us some things about how we need to reach people. And he was saying that a lot of times people who are not reading a, a word in God's word need to see the living word first. They need to see in you how much you really care So that they really start to pay attention to what you know. So Paul is focusing on this relational bridge building, and we saw that all through this build-up to chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians. The reason for that is because he wants to build these bridges so that he can show the compassion for the lost because he wants so desperately for them to become saved, to come into that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's because of God's love for them that Paul is sharing that same kind of love. So Paul is actually living out what he's talking about here, that we want to carry each other's burdens in the same way, fulfill the law of Christ by loving others the way Christ has loved us. Now let's look at an informed conscience. The law of Christ is not just a nebulous bunch of teaching from Christ. It does something for us. It's dynamic. It informs our conscience. I mean, kind of use an analogy here for that. It's not a perfect analogy, but I like it. The law of Christ informs or colors your conscience. It colors the way you see the world. It colors the way you perceive what's going on around you. I love this experiment. We did it way back when I was in school. Where you put some food coloring in some water, and then you put some flowers down into that food coloring. And then over time, that food coloring starts to work its way into the entire flower until, guess what? Yes, indeed. It colors even the outward example or expression of that flower. That's kind of what the law of Christ informs us about. Every time we read everything in the New Testament about Jesus Christ, his word starts to implant itself or work its way into us through the Holy Spirit, much the same way that this food coloring gets into the flower. And so it colors our conscience. And by looking through the new filters that he's giving us, the Christ filters, we see the world differently than than we once saw it. And it starts to change our outward appearance because we start to behave in ways that start to look more like what Christ would do as well. And so it's a wonderful thing to see how the many different colors within the body of Christ all start to shape. We're talking about this in our growth encounter. It starts to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ collectively as well as individually. It takes all the spiritual gifts for people to see Christ more clearly, which is why I love being a part of the body of Christ, because we're all very different, and it's in that diversity that God starts to put us together like a puzzle and show the picture of Jesus to a watching world. Well, the law of Christ informs or colors your conscience, and over time, God's Spirit works himself into you, and it changes you, and so you start to think and act more and more like Christ. That's how you're colored, and your heart becomes stirred by the same things that stir God's heart. That's where it becomes problematic for us, as we'll see in a couple of minutes, because some of us get stirred in different ways than others. The things that stir God's heart, oh, there's so many of them. This is a very small number of them that I'm putting out here for you today. The things that stir God's heart include things like injustice, I I became probably more angry than I should have yesterday when I was trying to move over on the freeway to get in the left lane because I saw flashing lights on the shoulder up ahead. And we're supposed to do that now. I mean, it's the law in Michigan, and we're supposed to move over. Or you can get a ticket if you don't give way to that person who's on the – well, the guy who was coming up behind me, of course, instantly went right over into the right lane and sped up to try to pass me. Well, that was just injustice, and I wasn't having it. It made me angry because I was stirred because of injustice, and when we see other people being mistreated unjustly, it should stir our hearts. God gets angry at injustice. When we see inhumane treatment, it just breaks our hearts. When we see people devaluing life of any kind, it's hard. It makes us angry. It makes us sad. When we see prejudice blatantly displayed, it should stir our hearts because that's what stirs God's heart. When we see self-destructive behavior, if we see people that we love doing things that we think, oh, don't do that, it's not going to end well for you. If you go that direction, it's going to bring pain into your life. And I don't want you to have pain because I care about you. That ought to stir our hearts. So that's giving you an idea of what I'm talking about when we're saying that we're starting to get stirred in our hearts because of an informed conscience, and it's informed by the law of Christ. Well, our conscience ought to move us into action. It ought to do more than just make us feel something. We ought to do something. That's why I think our entire nation has been on pins and needles for months because of this whole pandemic. Many people's consciences have been stirred, but they haven't all been stirred based on the informed conscience because of the law of Christ. Our consciences have been moved to action, but some of those actions have been debilitating and difficult sometimes we see things that clearly emanate from the law of Christ, a helpful act. Somebody sees somebody else struggling, and so they step in and provide a helpful act. Well, clearly, that's something that stirs God's heart. It stirred our heart. Our conscience was moved, and it moved us to the right action, a humble apology. If we know we've been wrong, for us to have that sense of conviction from the Holy Spirit, and he says, yeah, you really blew it. You need to apologize for that. Moving us to action means that we need to be honest about that. Not one of those mamby-pamby, well, I'm sorry if I might have done something wrong. Sorry that you perceived it that way. No, this needs to be a humble apology that says, yeah, I blew it. I could have done that very differently, and I'm so sorry that you were hurt by what I did. That's something that our conscience gets moved by when we're living under the law of Christ. A Genuine act of repentance, not just a, I'm sorry I got caught but I am terribly sorry for the pain that my actions caused other people. And I empathize now because I can feel that pain and I'm going to do something to rectify it. I'm going to do something to reconcile myself. I'm going to apologize and I'm going to change my actions so that I don't cause that same pain again. A gesture of reconciliation where somebody says, yeah, both of us have been waiting to contact the other and I've just been waiting for that person to say, I'm sorry, before I kind of reciprocate. Maybe God's Spirit can convict me enough that I say, it could start with me. I'll pick up the phone. I need to be the first one to start this reconciliation. I'm going to send them a note or I'm going to call them. I'm going to leave a message and say, I'm still thinking of you. I love you. Let's get together. Maybe a sacrificial act of love, even for an enemy. I remember Rich Mullins, that wonderful troubadour, the Christian musician who lived an extraordinary young life and then unfortunately went to heaven much too early for all of us who would have loved to have heard so much more music than he was able to provide. But I remember he he, uh, had said that he got angry at his road manager. She had said something that just irritated him and he lashed out at her and was much too harsh, he thought, than he should have been. And uh, her name was Gay and Gay was asleep at her house early one morning and she heard the sound of an engine running and she thought who is up at this time in the morning and she got up and tried to follow the sound went to the window looked out. It was a lawnmower engine and there was Rich Mullins mowing her lawn. That was his way of trying to give a recalcitrant sacrificial act of love even though he had thought of gay as his enemy because they disagreed over something. He thought, no, we're not enemies. What am I talking about? She's my beloved sister and she helped me in so many ways. That was his way of providing something that would hopefully move them back toward reconciliation. So that's a few very small examples of what our conscience does for us if it's informed by the law of Christ and it moves us into some action. So here we have the law of Christ and the church collectively, the body of Christ. Big things happen when an entire group of people are moved by this collective conscience informed by all this teaching from Jesus Christ. Big things happen. For example, slavery. This is going way back in history because the Roman Empire was a huge deal, as I'm sure you know. Aristotle, who is this great philosopher, somebody who was trying to help people make sense of the world in which they lived at the time, he wrote in the fourth century, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but it is also expedient from the hour of their birth. Some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Why did he say that? Because it was not even thought of as immoral. It wasn't even up for debate. Slavery just was, at least for those who own slaves. There were so many people there who owned slaves that it was just thought of as being such a normal practice. They wouldn't have even thought about debating that back then when he wrote that. What happened to change that? Well, how about the law of Christ? The Christian influence began to permeate that part of the world because as we know, there was a lot of Roman influence, the Hellenistic Jews, there were other people in the Roman Empire. They got dispersed because there was persecution. Christianity started to rise up and they were spreading like a good kind of leaven through the whole loaf in that region and in farther parts of that world, the known world at the time. And fourth century, Bishop St. Augustine began teaching that slavery was actually, bum, 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 the result of sin. Why could he say that? Because he was imbuing his teaching with what he knew to be true from Jesus Christ. And he understood that all creation is created by God and the crowning glory of creation, humanity, and that all humans are created in the image of God. Therefore, to treat another human being in a demeaning fashion, to say that they could be treated like property, was anathema to him. It was awful. And he started teaching that. Well, people's consciences began being stirred. First of all, individually, and then collectively in smaller groups, and then in entire congregations, and then entire villages and towns and regions, it started to change the culture of an entire nation. Why? Because of the law of Christ. Something has a big permeating influence, and we can see that that happens when the law of Christ influences our conscience. Another issue back then besides slavery was infanticide. Now, that was our word today. We would call it infanticide. They had a a term for that back then in the Roman Empire. It was called exposure. And what that meant was that the practice of exposure was that you could place your child out into the elements and just let them die. If, for example, uh, you felt that the child that your wife was bearing was not your child because she had had an illicit affair, you had the right legally, there were actually laws making some of these things possible, to expose your child. You could put the child as soon as it was born out into the elements and say, oh well, it might live, it might die, well, of course it's going to die. And that was an allowable practice. How could they do that? Because they thought the fates would decide that child's fate. That was their world view. What changed? the worldview changed. Christians began informing other people because of their informed consciences based on the law of Christ. They began teaching that all humans are created in the image of God. Same thing about slavery. Love motivated them. Compassion moved them to action. And in 318 AD, Emperor Constantine declared that the practice of exposure was illegal. That was a big deal. That was a really big deal. But wait, that's not all. Even further change happened because not only was it illegal, but a few years later, a different emperor, Valentinian, made exposure a capital offense. It was tantamount to murder, which means that if you exposed your child, having once thought that it was to be decided by the fates, and now understanding, oh, This child is a human being. I'm a human being. All human beings matter because all lives are created in the image of a wonderful God who loves everyone equally. So it's a capital offense. It's murder. If I put this child out there and allow it to die, that was a permeating influence, not just to a church, not just to a tiny subculture, but to the empire because this was an emperor who was making this a capital offense for everybody in the Roman empire. So we have this kingdom of God, and Jesus teaches about that in the law of Christ, as Paul and John would put it. So the law of Christ is transcultural, which means that it applies to every culture, not just to the early Roman Empire or to some of those areas like in Ephesus or Galatia or some of the places where Paul had been writing to. But it it applies to every culture. And it's transgenerational, which means that it also applies to every generation. That's pretty long-lasting, wouldn't you think? That's why unity is so important. The church has such a permeating effect, and that's why it was such a big deal to Paul, and it's why it's such a big deal today in 2020. John 17, 20 through 21. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning my disciples, the people who've been following me, That I'm praying for right out here as I'm wording these things, because this was right close to the time just before Jesus was going to be fulfilling his role, be nailed to a cross, put in the tomb, rise again. He said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father. That would be speaking to us today, if you're looking ahead in history to what he's saying right back then. He's saying that all of those who will come to know me, that would be most of you and I, all of us who have considered ourselves believers, if you're a believer, and I I hope you are, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's purpose to everything Paul is writing about. And it was a dysfunctional, divisive church that he was writing to. And he's saying, there's a reason why we need to be unified. It's so that as our unity grows in our oneness with God, the world that needs to be drawn to him, will believe that we are his followers. They will see us as different because we're not seeing a lot of unity in the world today. He would say that I can say it today. It's still very much true. People see unity around something that transcends things, even like politics. And they say, Oh, there's a higher priority there is something even more important than my political leaning. The law of Christ, an informed conscience. Then we have knowledge and wisdom as another layer that we'd like to add to this. So you can understand where Paul is coming from and where we can come from in 2020. James tells us, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. Knowledge begets good wisdom. We need to know enough because wisdom is simply knowledge rightly applied. And so we have this next layer. We have an informed conscience by the law of Christ, all the teachings of Jesus, and then we have knowledge. That knowledge is not just about what Christ taught, but about everything around us. Then that law of Christ informing us through our conscience also helps us develop wisdom, and it's godly wisdom. Let me add one more perplexing uh, layer to this, and this is the layer that starts to get all of us into what we would call a sticky wicket policy platforms and laws. Now, do you think that any of us are going to always agree all the time around all the policies put forth by legislators? Do you think we're all going to agree on every point of a particular candidate's platform? Yeah, I don't either. I don't think we are at all. There will always be disagreement in these areas among Christians always, and yet we can still be unified. We're going to see why in a couple of minutes. So here's a guy named Rufus Miles. He was an interesting fella. He was a political advisor and an administrator under three different presidents, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson, and he served as an aide to those presidents. He was a smart fella, and he said this, which was later couched by others as Miles Law. He said, where you stand depends on where you sit. That sounds like one of those truth-isms that my father-in-law would have spoken when he was alive. He was really good at those good little uh, sentences, kind of like what my wife would say when she says, everybody's short until you're not. Well, where you stand depends on where you sit. Let me explain what he meant by that. Where you stand depends on where you sit means that where you sit is your cultural context. That would be maybe where you went to school, how you were raised, how much money you did or didn't have, or how much money your parents did or didn't have, whether you had any parents at all, if you had one parent, if you had divorced parents, all of those cultural contexts add into what he described as where you sit. And then depending on all those cultural contexts, then that determines where you stand on different issues. That's because you have a different interpretation of those issues than somebody who sat in a different place. If you grew up in urban Chicago, for example, you might have a very different interpretation of certain issues or policies or laws than a person who is in suburban Michigan, because you saw the world differently and you saw it from two very different perspectives. Now, let me continue to unpack this just a little bit. Most of us, I would would be I think pretty certain that most of us probably don't see any conflict at all between our faith and our politics. Why not? Because where we have sat has determined where we stand. To us, it makes so much sense because of our cultural context. We've determined for ourselves what we think to be the right interpretation of how we can fulfill the law of Christ based on our informed conscience, and we're wanting to fulfill the law of Christ Which is why we could have some people that would say, I'm a Christian, and I love Jesus Christ, and I have an informed conscience based on the law of Christ. Therefore, I'm voting Republican. And that's why some people could say, I love Jesus Christ, and I have an informed conscience, and I want to live out the law of Christ, and I want to help the most people in a way that would show them Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm voting as a Democrat. And that's why sometimes there would be people that would say, I have such a strongly informed conscience that I can't vote for either side this year because I'm so conflicted, because I can't find any middle ground, and I feel like the only thing left to me are extremes, and I don't want to be drawn to either of those extremes. And that's why, even though I know some people tell me it won't make a difference, I have to vote for a third party candidate. Do you see why some people might think they're doing the very best thing possible And yet they would find themselves on different sides of certain issues or candidates because we don't have a lot of choices. Our cultural context really influences our interpretation of the events and of the issues that we're trying to sift out so that we can try to do the best we can. And here's another thing. Our interpretation wasn't formed in a vacuum. All of us have had different experiences. All of us have seen the world from slightly different perspectives. We have either experienced things ourselves or have witnessed things happening in other people that just make us see the world a little bit different. Let me give you one quick example of that. Uh, Joy and I had a really nice visit with our kids in Chicago a few weeks ago. And we were wearing our masks and we walked a few blocks away from their apartment or their condo. We got out on this wonderful sidewalk cafe where we had some dynamite pie, some of the best pie I've had in a long time. And we had good, lengthy, compassionate, amiable political discussion, even though we differ on many of the issues that we talked about. But what we discovered is we don't differ that far. It's in differing how we would approach trying to solve that issue that we disagreed. And those disagreements were minor, we felt, particularly in light of the bigger issues that were there. And what I discovered was, The more I listened, the more I could see their perspective and I could say, okay, that doesn't mean they're a horrible, terrible, bad person because they are voting from a different perspective than I'm voting from because they have different experiences. Uh, Again, a very specific example of what happened there that I had to learn something new. I've grown up in a place where a grocery store is a grocery store. That's where you go to buy your groceries. I found out that even though I was really angry early on in the pandemic, when I found out that liquor stores were allowed to be left open when they were closing down churches, you know, it just made my blood boil. And then I found out something that softened my view a bit. I found out that in many urban places where they don't have a big grocery store nearby, some people don't have transportation. The only means for them to get food for their kids is to walk two or three or four blocks to a liquor store where they also sell food. There was some method to the madness or the seeming madness of some of the people who were making decisions that didn't make sense to me. Why? Because my cultural context was different. And I had to think, oh, I see. So if I were compassionate, if I have the law of Christ informing my conscience, moving me to action, Maybe I could put together care packages with my church friends and we could deliver them to people in urban settings that have a hard time getting food or getting to the right places to get food. Maybe there's something that I could do to show them that I really do care about them. And maybe I need to change my attitude just a little bit because I learned something new. Here's the thing. We need to take time out to listen. Man, have I had to learn that this last few months. And I'm not not as good as I need to be at it. I'm honest with you. Sometimes my blood boils too quickly and I have to remove myself from a situation more quickly than I would like. And I need to train myself to be patient enough to listen so that I can understand somebody else's cultural context. And maybe I'll learn something that will change my perspective a little bit about where they are. Listening to understand, that's a mark of Christian maturity. For me to just simply slap my hand down and say, nope, I'm not going to listen to this. I dare not listen to that. You are so different from from what I am, and I I don't want to hear it. And then just stomp out and shut the door. That's not a mark of maturity. I have been immature at times during the pandemic because I have shut people off, either in my mind or on the television or in other ways because I just haven't been able to deal with it because my emotions have gotten the best of me. I think we struggle with that quite a bit during this time, don't you? So to be able to ask, what is this person's cultural context? And then ask enough questions to get them to talk about these things and then zip my lip and listen so that I can understand where they're coming from. We don't have to throw out our beliefs. This is important. We don't have to throw out our beliefs while trying to understand another person's perspective. I try to teach this in pre-marriage counseling all the time. That doesn't mean by saying, I want to listen so I can understand where you're coming from better. That doesn't mean that you necessarily have to change your position. You may still wind up with the same position you started with, but you'll understand better where they're coming from on their position. And caution, you just might change your position a little bit as well. But that doesn't mean I'm telling everybody that we ought to switch our political ideologies all of a sudden because we're listening to somebody else. You may still wind up very strongly in the same side of the camp that you started with, but I'll guarantee you life will be better for all of us if we will pay more attention to other people to try to find out where they're coming from and then to use Paul's frame of reference so that they can see that we're unified around things that are even bigger than politics so that they can see that Christ matters and that the church will go on forever and that the salvation that we're offering so freely lasts for eternity because politics are not the answer. It's a temporary response to something that we pray God will use in a way that will help us out, but it's not the answer. Christ is the answer. Here's a personal statement. This is just from me. This is my opinion here. I think it's possible. I really do for us as believers to prayerfully fulfill the law of Christ by doing the very best we can to love people the way Christ has loved us, by opening our hands to others, our hearts to others, our ears to others, without necessarily changing our political choices. I really believe we can do that. And yet, here's the caveat, God might just change some of our perspectives as we listen. Here's three practical steps very practical. You've heard this stuff before. I preached it fairly often, in fact, but it's especially true today in this political climate. Number one, listen. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I will purposefully listen to people who have experienced the world differently than I have. That's my action step number one, and I'm not talking about just politics here. I'm saying I want to listen to people who were raised who had less money than my family had or who had a lot more money than my family had, or blacks listening to whites and whites listening to blacks, gay people listening to straight people, straight people listening to gay people. I want to listen to people who come from other backgrounds, maybe even from other countries. I want to expose myself in a way to the kinds of ideas and ideologies and backgrounds and cultural experiences so that I can truly get to know somebody and to get an idea of where they have sat that would cause them to believe what they believe. Because some of us might think, I could never understand why somebody could possibly believe that. Well, if we say that, that means we need to listen so we can find out why they believe that. Number two, action step, learn. We have nothing to be afraid of as Christians. Our faith and our worldview is built on an unshakable historic event. The same thing that Paul's faith was built on. The thing that changed Paul was a risen Christ. It was the resurrection of Christ that in his mind was unmistakable and unshakable. So he didn't have anything to fear about learning new things. He could go into a new culture and ask them lots of questions about what gods they served and how they came to their conclusions so that he can meet them in a bridge building way and tell them the truth about Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's what drove Paul. Folks, that's what ought to drive us too. And if we're putting our faith filter above our political filter, then there ought to be something in our informed conscience, the Holy Spirit saying, oh, wait a minute, you're taking the political filter so far that you're missing your opportunity to tell somebody about something that's gonna transcend the political realm and it's gonna last forever. That should be something that the Holy Spirit is doing to build into our minds all the time. Eternity, eternity, eternity. Politics are temporal. The gospel is eternal. My action step number two, based on that, I'm going to purposefully learn from someone else why they could believe something that seems hard for me to believe. And as I learn, I'm demonstrating, even in the fact that I'm shutting my mouth long enough to listen for learning, shows that I care about another person's background. The fact that I'm just listening to them demonstrates some form of love and acceptance. And boy, don't we need that today. I uh, had a chance to do a funeral for a family. I did not know this family. I was doing a funeral as a stand-in for another pastor who was out of town on a family emergency. And one of the things I try to do is just to sit around with the children of a deceased parent and say, I'm going to be a fly on the wall. And I just want to listen to you tell your parents' story. And I did that with these people. And they had so many good stories. And this person was such a wonderful example of a Christian who'd lived her life so well, and for so many years, 90 years old. So it was easy for me to retell those stories at the eulogy. And I got the biggest compliment from one of the sons who had lived with his mom for years after he had become an adult. He said, you couldn't have done a better job if you had known my mother for 30 years. That ministered to me for him to say that. But what it showed them was I was just simply willing to listen. And I think that as we listen to other people, it just shows them that we care. We want to know your story because you matter to us. And then practical step number three, love. Love the way Christ loved us. Remember, Christ died for both of you, you and that person that you're trying to listen to, that person who's very different than you are and for that person whose cultural experience has colored the way they see the world or interpret the issues or the policies or the legislation. It's colored the way they see the world and you need to try to figure out how can we build a bridge even though we come from two very different backgrounds. The law of Christ is to love others as Christ has loved us. And that's what we're trying to do as we love people long enough to listen and learn from them. So here's my action step number three. I will purposefully love someone else who believes something I find difficult to believe just as Christ loved me before I believed in him. That's exactly what he did to me. There were times when many people before they become a Christian probably don't wanna have anything to do with God or Jesus Christ. Paul was that way. (laughs) There's so many people that their testimony shows that they didn't have a belief. In fact, they were antagonistic toward the things of God. And then after the fact, they realize, oh my gosh, I am like those little babies that used to be set out into the elements back in the Roman uh, world in the early days. And somebody adopted me. that's what Christians did back then. They would literally go out to where people were putting their babies out for exposure because they knew some of the spots where that would happen. And even though they had very little in the way of resources. They would expend what meager resources they had to take those babies into their own home and care for them because their compassion moved them to action. And a watching world would see them do that and say, why would you do such a thing? You're sacrificially giving of yourself when I was willing to give up my own child. That's what God did for us. Even though we didn't understand it at the time, even while we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. He gave up everything so that we could be reconciled with him. So that's my action step number three. Love someone else who believes differently than you believe. Now, here's a reasonable question. Do you honestly think that all this lovey-dovey, touchy-feely, listen and don't, you know, is this going to really make a difference? Absolutely. I absolutely believe so. The early Christians were caught between a powerful empire, the Roman Empire, and a powerful temple, that Jewish temple. They were completely under the authority and the power of these two great world powers. And guess what? The empire, it is no more. The temple is gone. So what does that show us? Christianity, still going strong. Jesus said he was going to build his church, and nothing would ever stop it. In fact, it said not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Not even the powers of hell can stop the church, and Christ knew what he was doing, and he did that. He created this church. You and I are part of that church if we're believers, which is why Paul would say, guys, we need to be united around something that's not gonna pull us apart. We dare not be pulled apart by politics. We dare not, because it's an affront to the gospel if we do that. We can't let ourselves get pulled apart. So you're invited. Here's the thing, Paul was saying to the folks back then, Christ continues to extend this invitation to people today. We're all invited to be a part of this ecclesia, the church. And together we can demonstrate unity around that which will last forever even though we will never have complete consensus around policy platforms and laws. Because nations rise and nations fall. But the word of the Lord lasts forever and his church will go on forever. It is possible, I firmly believe this, it is possible to disagree over politics, which are temporary, while loving others unconditionally and while praying for unity around that which will last forever ever. Our unity is not based on agreement on temporal matters like policy platforms and laws. It never will be. We're always going to have disagreements among Christ followers around these three issues. We always will. Our unity is founded upon the rock that was the theme for this little visual intro that we had this morning about all those different rocks. And I love the fact that we've had somebody that would, we will, we will rock you. You've been rocking us with those wonderful artistic rocks with great messages of hope that you've delivered to us. Thank you, whoever's doing it. I still don't know who did it. Somebody asked me this week, are we going to get the, the big reveal? Do we get to find out who did it? No, because I still don't know who did it. But we're founded upon the rock upon which we stand, the rock of Jesus Christ, Because all other ground, including politics, is sinking sand. Can I get an amen? All right. Here's the question. We're back to it. This is what's driven all of this today. Am I willing to place my faith filter above or over my political filter? Doesn't mean you shouldn't be passionate about politics. God bless you for being passionate. We need to change our society. The The little bits that we can do, and that's one of the reasons I think we feel so frustrated is that we feel like there's not much we can do because we're really limited. That's part of my frustration. I want to do more, but I feel limited. So, yes, we should be passionate about our politics. Is that the end all be all? No. We need to pray about that so that God can remind us to put our faith filter above our political filter and love people the way Christ loved us. So, let's pray about that, shall we? Father, Oh, boy, if this was ever a time for unity in the church, now is that time. And I have experienced so much personal frustration in light of the divisions that exist in the world today, some of which I have seen creeping into the church, not super often, but occasionally. And I just really want to harness Paul's great practical words and put them to good use today by saying that they are more applicable than ever. They're so relevant for us today, because right now in this political climate, we need to be unified around Jesus Christ, the law of Christ, your teaching, the gospel, and hold that gospel out to a watching world so that they can see us and say, I want what they've got because what they've got lasts forever. And I want that so desperately, and I'm praying for that. And I pray that your spirit will help us all be stirred in our consciences, informed by your teachings, so that we'll look and act more like Christ every day. And it's in your name and in your authority that we pray. Amen.